hey, I wanted to try to find um, what Easter could mean to this moment that we're living in. So, you ready to jump into it? Let's, let's jump into it. You know, COVID-19 makes us think about our mortality. Our brains aren't designed for that. So argued a Washington Post article from last October. And the author quotes a social psychologist who defines our inclination not to think about death as an existential anxiety. Simply put, there is a disconnect created by knowing we are human, but persuading ourselves we are not going to die. This allows us to live our lives, that is, until we bump into our own mortality. Things like COVID-19 or a cancer diagnosis or car accidents act like smelling salts that shock us back into reality. I read a riveting story this week about uh, an American journalist who, living in Paris named Marlowe Hood. The article was entitled Love and Fear of Dying in the Time of Coronavirus. Um, interesting guy. He had a, a fatal, nearly fatal bout with TB when he was four years old. So this guy is 64. He's male. He's overweight and prone to lung infection. He wrote that as the knowledge of COVID increased, he felt the target on his back grow bigger and bigger. And this is what he wrote after his terrible ordeal. He said, in hindsight, I know that I never got close enough to knock on death's door. I suffered excruciating pain and relentless bouts of high fever for 12 days while in isolation at home but my body held firm. I spent a week in the hospital, but didn't need intensive care. My lungs were a mix of virus and bacteria, but it didn't graduate to acute respiratory syndrome. But hindsight is 2020, real time isn't. The virus toyed with my body and messed with my mind. The fact is, is we are not used to thinking about or talking about our mortality. John Stott in the book, The Cross of, Christ, Cross of Christ, wrote this. It is sometimes said that whereas our Victorian forebears had a morbid fascination with death, but never spoke of sex, our contemporary generation is obsessed with sex while death is the great unmentionable. The fear of death is practically universal. I think this is right. And Stott concurs with the psychologist cited in the Washington Post that there is a dissonance, a disconnect, a mind game that we play in order to survive. Now, we all know the result of when we try not to think of something, something that we dread, that at some point in the future we know we must face, Trying, for example, to consciously not think about that car engine does not mean the anxiety goes away. It just shows up in other forms. Trying consciously not to think about that pain in your abdomen does not mean the anxiety goes away. It just shows up in different forms. Trying consciously not to think about that growing debt 
does not mean the anxiety goes away. It just shows up in different forms. Now, you might be thinking at this point, Chris, Pastor Chris, this, this is Easter. I have my family with me. The ham and the candied yams are cooking back home. The weather is beautiful. An egg hunt for the kids is planned. Why are you forcing me to think about something I don't want to think about? Here's why. We have greeted the development and release of the COVID vaccination as a miracle. It is good news. It is great news. I was with my own doctor recently who is conservative by nature, yet he spoke glowingly about the future as more and more people receive the vaccination. We have some hope that life may get back to normal. It has softened our anxiety. It was great news because the previous news has been so bad. Yet the vaccination, while it might help solve COVID, will not erase your ultimate fear, your ultimate anxiety. To uproot the anxiety that lingers in various forms from the fear of death, you need something or someone far more powerful than a vial of medicine. You see, what our social psychologists called an existential anxiety, or others call death anxiety, the Bible identified 2,000 years ago. Turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. You'll see it here on the screen, or you can use your device or a Bible. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Since the children, that's humanity, you and me, have flesh and blood, he, Jesus, too, shared in their humanity so that by his death he, may break, he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. You see, many years ago, the Bible identified this existential anxiety with a different name, calling it slavery to fear. And the Bible identifies Jesus as the only one who can break the power of that fear. So what I'd like to do this morning with this verse as our jumping off point, answer three questions. One, what does slavery to fear mean? Secondly, what strategies do people across the world employ to address, to break the fear of death? Thirdly, how did Jesus break the power of death? Let's pause for a moment and pray and ask God to help us, help us learn this morning and receive his word to us. You bow with me and, and pray with me. Father, uh, we ask you, because your presence is here, that by the power of the Holy Spirit, our eyes and ears might be opened to hear and to listen and to receive 
your love, your resources, your gifts this morning that we need to live with greater freedom in this world and greater joy. And Father, I ask you to do that for my friends here through the glorious name with the authority of our Lord Jesus. Amen. 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 So with your scriptures open, if you could, uh, or keep, we'll keep referring back to this passage. The first question, what does slavery to fear mean? Well, slavery means restriction, confinement, owing your life to another, held against your will. This, I believe, is exactly what the writer has in mind. In the large picture, because of human sin, the world is broken and the world is fallen. We might think of ourselves as autonomous individuals who have control, but we don't. We are not our own. We are held by a powerful force against our will, though we are blind to it. And we cannot break free from that by any form of self-salvation. And that force is the power of death. And it is held over us by the arch enemy of God, a powerful angel whom the Bible calls Satan. Now listen, I get it. I get it that the postmodern consciousness sees the world only through materialistic lenses. That uh, entities such as spirit beings or angels and demons are foolish remnants of a superstitious past. But the worldview of the Bible does affirm the existence of such and a cosmic struggle that happens beyond human sight. And throughout most of human history, men and women have affirmed that view. For those of you that have that postmodern consciousness, I would simply ask, have you ever thought that maybe our generation is the one that is in error. Going back to our story, the Bible teaches that when humanity sinned in this story, we lost our birthright as children of God. We lost our place as rightful stewards over the planet. And Satan now exerts, he exerts control. Jesus made this quite clear three times referring to Satan as the prince of this world. For example, John 12, 31. Now it is time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. John 14, 30. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me. John 16, 11, referring to the coming of the Holy Spirit, it says, and about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now, we'll have more to say about this later, but suffice for now, Satan is recognized as having unique influence and control over the world. He is a source of confusion, disease, deception, war, exploitation, violence, pollution, injustice, racism, decay, and ultimately death. Without an intervention, we are lost. 
Now that explains the slavery cosmically. But what does it look like in our everyday lives? Well, it's an anxiety that takes different forms. Remember what we said earlier, that even though we don't want to think or talk about our death, we know that it is there. So, the residual fears, for example, could be the fear of not having done enough with your life. It could be the fear of being forgotten. It could be the fear of being mired in regret with decisions that you cannot undo. Conversely, the lingering anxiety could be an obsession with your legacy or a self-centered search for meaning by taking on some cause. To others, it may appear that you're living a life of service or philanthropy, but in the end, it is still all about you. And the nervousness of being found out, the fear of being exposed, is a fear that enslaves. All of these fears are vain pursuits, enslave us. And they revolve around the fear of death. You know, we've talked about this natural tendency to push this fear out of our minds. And yet at the same times, we've talked about circumstances that bring it back to the fore. This tension, this internal conflict can live within any of us. And it was the experience of Dr. Francis Collins as a young medical student. And Collins, as you know, would go on to, to uh, discover uh, breakthroughs in genetics. He would lead the Human Genome Project. He must be one of the most brilliant men in the world. Uh, a recent article in The Atlantic uh, told his story about being a third-year medical student. And he found himself moving from agnostic to atheism. Collins said, I would have challenged anybody who wanted to have some discussion about God. I would have asserted they were basically stuck in some past era of supernaturalism that is no longer necessary because science has eliminated the need for it. But the time came as a third-year medical student when he found himself sitting at the bedside of people who had terrible illnesses that physicians were unable to help. Dr. Collins went on to say, Watching those individuals at the end of their lives, I was trying to imagine what I would do in that circumstance. Many of these people were deeply committed to faith. I was unsettled to see how they approached the end of life. This was something I was personally terrified about. But they had peace and even a sort of sense of joyfulness that there was something beyond it made me realize that I had never really gone beyond the most superficial consideration of whether God exists or a serious consideration of what happens after you die. Now, I'll come back to Dr. Collins before we leave this morning, but let's now go to our second question. What strategies do people employ to break through the fear of death? I think there's three strategies. One, secular, of course. Two, spirituality. And three, religion. I'll go through all three and then evaluate them. First, the secular. In the Washington Post article, there was some great insight about how secular thinkers approach death. And they approach it, of course, from a purely 
material way of looking at the world. There is no God, or at least one who is active in our lives. So what could they offer as to how the fear of death might serve some good? Well, the first thing I notice is that, and this is an observation that I would agree with, is that a brush with death doesn't always change our behaviors as much as intensify our pre-existing beliefs and behaviors. Confronting our mortality does bring out the best and the worst in people. Have we not definitely through this pandemic seen the worst in people? Gobbling up and hoarding sanitizer, bottled water, and toilet paper, fights in grocery stores, our racism and abusive behavior. Yet for others, it can bring out the best. For example, one young woman, a high school classmate of my daughter, now a practicing attorney, she's been making a card one a day for a year for hospitalized kids. Yeah, we've seen the best and we've seen the worst of people through this pandemic. Sheldon Solomon, who we met earlier in the Washington Post article, says, even if we don't think about it every day, an occasional reminder of our own mortality doesn't have to cause us paralyzing anxiety or send us running to Amazon with a credit card in one hand and a martini in the other. He went on to suggest an alternative way of thinking about mortality. And in this, we have the essence of the secular answer to breaking the fear of death. Here's what he said. He wrote this. I am an infinitesimal, infinitesimal, how many syllables are in that word? I'm an infinitesimal speck of carbon-based dust born in a time and a place not of my own choosing, here for an incredible brief amount of time before my atoms are scattered back into the cosmos. That need not be a terrifying thought. This is the secular answer. Let's go to the second one, spirituality. Spirituality, a little different. One counselor, I, I, I found some in, just insights about spirituality from a, a, a counseling blog, and this one counselor encouraged her readers, in light of the anxiety, the fear of death, to connect to something bigger than themselves. Look for meaning outside yourself. This is what she wrote. She said, it's not about believing in God or finding religion just because of coronavirus. It's about finding something that gives things a bigger meaning, meaning for you personally. So this statement here reveals what she means by connecting to something bigger than yourself. It is not connecting to a God revealed in history and open to verification, a God you must bend to, bow to, and serve. Rather, it is a God or entity or higher power of your own making and choosing. This is the modern sense of spirituality. We can pull what we like, what we agree from various religions, and create our own we can construct a god or goddess around our existing assumptions, beliefs, and needs. Okay? So that's the spirituality solution. 
that some choose. Here's the third one, and it's the religious option that people choose to solve their anxiety. Now, religion is similar to but different than spirituality, and religion is similar to but different than what I am talking about from the Bible. This is why religion is the greatest competitor to the Bible and its truth. The secular view, of course, assumes there's no God or no heaven, but the religious view assumes there is a God and there is a heaven. Now, you might be saying, now I'm really confused, Chris. Here's what I mean by religion. What do I mean by religion? What I'm, what I'm saying is religion is a belief. It's an assumption that I can build with my life a moral resume or a spiritual resume that earns for me, that entitles me to life after death, approval from God, and acceptance into heaven. I can do enough moral things uh, through causes that help others, or I can fill my life with church and church related service such that there is no possible way God could reject my resume. I can do enough to overcome or outweigh the regrettable things I have done, said, or thought. This is the essence of religion, okay? This is the essence of religion. So these three are the largely universal world options, secular, spiritual, religious, that people employ to try to address this existential anxiety. Let's comment briefly on all three. First, the secular option. The secular option falls short on many levels. Simply from the perspective of what's true, it is self-refuting. For example, there is no way we can say racism or hoarding or selfish is morally wrong if there is no God, if there's no ultimate judge, if there's no judgment. Our secular writers were certainly implying that these activities were morally wrong. But if all we are, and if we are only here for an incredibly short amount of time, why should I sacrifice for you? Why shouldn't I hoard? You might have an opinion on these behaviors, but you cannot say to someone else that you are morally wrong. Their opinion is as good as yours, for that's all yours is in a moralist world, an opinion, a feeling. It's not what ought to be. Therefore, as a worldview, this secular position collapses on itself. Secondly, it falls short on explaining human nature. I was very intrigued by what Dr. Solomon was trying to prove, that if the universe is empty or abandoned or is random, that somehow people facing death don't find that terrifying. I'm not sure who he's speaking for. Universally, historically, people throughout the world have found that to be terrifying. See, the Bible teaches that God put a desire for eternity in our hearts. And many have made convincing arguments that human behavior confirms our ache to live forever. One thinks, for example, of Peter Berger, now past, but 
when living a world-renowned, respected sociologist who argued this very point in the book, The Rumor of Angels. For these reasons, the secular view must be rejected. What about the argument from spirituality? Think about it. Think about it. If I come up with my own religion, I am relying on my own authority, my own reason, and my own intellect. This is not really a God I can have a relationship with or worship because he, she, or it can never contradict me. They must bend to my needs and my wishes. They must conform to the wisdom of the moment, wisdom that in a generation could be and probably will be flipped upside down. Is this a God you can really trust when you sit on the doorway of death? I don't think spirituality will solve our death anxiety. And finally, what about the argument from religion? Surely this pathway creates certainty and thus relieves the anxiety. But how can you know when you have done enough? How can you know when you are good enough? How can you know that your regrettable things, bad deeds, if you will, bring balance to your good? And what about the gnawing sense that your bad deeds, despite whatever means you've made to overcome them or compensate for them, what about that gnawing sense that they still require a judgment? Could you apply the same justice for yourself that you demand for others? Friends, it all seems quite a gamble. And that is why religion cannot solve our fears. It, too, must be rejected. Secular, spirituality, religion. None can address our foundational anxiety that enslaves us. Tim Keller, who many of you know, he's a famous New York City pastor. We quote him often. He is experiencing his own brush with death. He's recently received news of terminal pancreatic cancer. He wrote a beautiful article in the Atlantic called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. I'd encourage all of you to read it. Uh, uh, Keller has been by the bedside of many and has witnessed firsthand the failure of these strategies to hold up when the abstract becomes, becomes real. When the abstract becomes real, these strategies, these strategies collapse. Another illustration of when these strategies collapse was detailed by a book by Matthew Levering, a book called Dying and the Virtues, and in it, he talks about the death of Susan Sontag. Do you remember that name? Very popular writer uh, in the 70s, particularly uh, addressing the political and cultural turmoil. This is what Levering writes about her approach to death. Susan Sontag died of cancer in 2004 at the age of 71. When her cancer returned after a long remission, Sontag was struggling desperately against it. She refused to hear that she was dying, even in the midst of her treatments. She dreamt and spoke continually of what she could do when she got out of the hospital and once more took up the reins of her life. The future was everything. Living was everything. Getting back to work was everything. 
she insisted that she would make a completely fresh start and would write in a new way. She would do the things she had always wanted to do rather than doing the things she did because of mere duty. Her son claimed that she concentrated her limited energy in undertaking a, I love this phrase, revolt against death. But when she died, she died unreconciled to her own extinction. Sontag, of course, did not believe in God, our life after death. Her sole hope consisted in medical and scientific data and in the treatment plans of her physicians. Her son said she thought the world a charnel house. I'm sorry, my wife corrected me on how to pronounce that. It would be charnel house. <laughs> charnel house uh, would be some sort of a depository, uh, for example, by a church in a graveyard that would maintain any uh, bones or skeletal remains that for some reason um, surfaced. She thought the world a charnel house and couldn't get enough of it. She thought herself unhappy and wanted to live unhappy for as long as she possibly could. Weeping and panicked as she neared her death, she told the nurse she was dying with the implication that the whole thing was horrific and absurd. Reflecting on his mother's body in a Paris graveyard beside other famous writers, Levering, her son, concludes that, concludes this, unless you believe in spirits or the Christian fairy tale of resurrection, those who have died no longer, those who have died simply no longer exist and never will exist again. Again, this would be the secular view that was not able to hold up. It held up in the abstract, but it did not hold. It crumbled when reality hit. So that leads us to our third question. How did Jesus break the power of death? Our verse in Hebrews said that Jesus, through his death, broke the power of death, but how? Paul explains it in another place. Look at this scripture, 1 Corinthians 15, 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. Paul says this. Paul says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Paul says Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He has just argued for the proof of Christ's resurrection, providing concrete, eyewitness, historical resurrection that would be acceptable, many legal scholars have said, in any court of law. And so therefore, the Christian witness and testimony rejects the testimony of Susan Sontag's son that the resurrection was a fairy tale, just the opposite. Then he says, death came through a man. This was Adam. In Romans 5.12, Paul, in a parallel passage, provides a little more detail. In Romans 5.12, it says that sin entered the world through one man, and thus death entered the world through sin. You see, this is the essential question unanswered in the other strategies, be they secular, spiritual, or religious. They did not answer the question of why we die. 
And to get to the right answer, we must understand this question. You see, we die not because that was what nature dictated through some evolutionary process, but we die because of God's judgment on our sin. Now, I know that's a tough pill to swallow, and we naturally resist it, but we die because we deserve to die. Sin separates us from God, causing spiritual and inevitably physical death. This, as I explained earlier, is why we are held captive to the power of sin, the power of the law, God's law, which condemns us, and the power of the devil, who is the prince of this world. Indeed, an unholy trinity that enslave us to fear and condemnation. Fleming Rutledge, she wrote this in the book, The Crucifixion, that the human situation is so tragic that there is no answer within history. The Christ event, the coming of Christ, is therefore the invasion of the world by another who is retaking for himself the world he created. Rutley just saying what I've been sharing. We need rescued. We need a hero. The human situation is so tragic, there is no answer from within. And we need someone like us. In verse 14 of our Hebrews passage, it says that's why Jesus became a man. Why? To die for us. And here's the great news. Christ in his death received the judgment we deserved. He became sin. He absorbed the wrath of God on his physical body. The judgment that a rapist or a pedophile, the judgment that an extortioner or an oppressor, the judgment that a murderer or someone who flies out in rage, that judgment fell on the person of Jesus. But you see that that death that he received, it broke the curse. It broke the power Satan had over us. Again, let me go back to Fleming Rutledge to try to encapsulate this. She writes, the cross is the place where the decisive battle between Christ and sin took place, where the powers of Satan brought all their strength to the attack and where they were defeated. It is the place where the wages of sin was accepted on behalf of the whole human race. Again, looking back at 1 Corinthians, Paul writes that the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. So in Christ, all will be made alive. What is the event that proves God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, that his death paid the judgment and breaks the curse. The event that proves he has won the victory, it is the resurrection. It proves Jesus won the victory. And because he resurrected, resurrected and he shares our humanity, we have a confidence that we too will be resurrected. The vaccine is good news. 
A resurrection from the dead is the best possible news. Amen. Now, I said I'd come back to this just very briefly. Satan, yes, the prince of the world, remains. And he tempts and he prowls and he accuses. But his power, his unconditional power over death has been broken and taken away. Friends, if you abandon, if you will abandon completely any attempt at, sal your, at self-salvation through, through good works, through religion, through spirituality, and place your soul fully in the hands of Jesus, then you can live without the fear of death and its lingering residual effects on us. This is a hope that matters. This is a hope that matters. It is a hope that allows you to not spin your wheels trying to make heaven out of this world. It is a hope that allows you to not spin your wheels seeking to build a utopia in this world. It is a hope that allows you to actually stop and enjoy this world for what it can offer you without demanding it deliver something it cannot. It is a hope that recognizes this is not our final home. And that's why it doesn't feel that way. It is a hope that recognizes you have a new city, a new home. You'll have a new body. It'll be a new heaven and earth where all your dreams and desires will be realized beyond anything you can imagine. That's the gospel story. That is the gospel story. That is why Christians have been celebrating the resurrection ever since it took place. It was so significant and so magnanimous on human history that we are still counting days and weeks and years today after the resurrection of Jesus. To close, let me finish. Let me go back to Dr. Collins, Francis Collins. After his experiences watching people of faith die, he later met a Methodist pastor who, quote, willingly tolerated my blasphemous questions and assured me that if God was real, there would be answers. It was this pastor who introduced Collins to the work of C.S. Lewis, starting with mere Christianity. Collins said, I realized that most of my objections against faith were utterly simplistic. Here was an Oxford intellectual giant, Lewis, who had traveled the same path from atheism to faith and had a way of describing why that made sense, that made sense that was utterly disarming. It was also very upsetting. It was not the answer I was looking for. But still, at age 27, Dr. Collins became a Christian. And you can too. Will you pray with me? Father, for friends watching at home or in our fellowship hall or here, we ask now that the hope that we described this morning that comes from the story revealed to us in the Bible would connect 
to our hearts in a way like it's never connected before. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.